around about the year 2003 or 4, I noticed that increasingly archives from the communist era were being declassified. And um, they really um, allow me to put together what I would refer to as a self-portrait by the Communist Party of China. This extraordinary image that comes from a report by a local carter in a county in Sichuan province, where he finds out that um, local, locally in the county, about a quarter of a million of kilos of mud have been dug up and eaten. So he wants to find out what happens. He goes down to the village. He sees a pit with villagers naked, sweating under the glare of the sun, shriveled bodies queuing up in order to go down the pit and grab a handful of the white porcelain-colored mud referred to as guanyin soil. It's a vision of hell. It's a vision of hell. And once you know what happens when people ingest uh, mud, once the moisture is taken out, it acts like concrete. So the entire digestive system is, is entirely blocked up. People that die of pain, excruciating pain. It's awful. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Modern History HSC podcast. Today, we're looking at our first student discussion topic, looking at the Great Leap Forward and the start of the Cultural Revolution under Mao Zedong. I'm joined today by Thomas Bora, Riley Richardson, and Lachlan Tickle. They're going to have a little bit of a chance now to introduce themselves before we dive into our first talking point. So Thomas has already been on the podcast, so I'll start with him. Yeah, hi, my name's Tom. Um, I'm back again <laughs> to talk about the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. Tom, do you like this topic or do you find this one of the harder topics? I find this to be one of the harder topics, but it's pretty um, good in terms of the fact that it draws a lot of parallels to Russia and the Soviet Union and stuff. Yeah, which, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, keep going. Yeah, so Tom's saying that he's confident with it because if your subjects are structured in such a way that they can overlap so for us we're doing the cold war and the soviet union you'll see a lot of similarities um in the pre-discussion tom what were you saying um you would describe mao zedong as um, mao zedong wants to be stalin 2.0 yeah absolutely and that's um perfect evidence of what we're talking about, that we can draw on these similar themes. We've got history repeating um, one of history's greatest themes. Uh, next up, Riley, can you give us a little bit of an introduction first time on the podcast? Hi, I'm Riley Richardson, and uh, I'm pretty keen to talk about something. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty keen to talk about cultural revolution and the Great Leap Forward. 
Are you um, really Riley? Are you really that? Are you really that keen? Riley's a little bit nervous. Maybe yeah. you can tell us about your your car, mate. I know you love your car. Tell the audience about your car. Um, it's a Toyota '86, and yeah, it's my daily, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty mad. <laughs> um, Riley's going to do his best today, and he's going to throw over now to Lachlan Tickle. So Lachlan. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction, mate? Hey, I'm Lockie, and I'm uh, just really interested to talk about this subject. Excellent. What do you like about this particular top, uh, topic, Lachlan? Um, I like how it just shows like the differences between communism between Russia and also China at the time. Yeah, you get kind of like a comparative study, kind of like what Tom was saying before. It's like we've been here before, we've done the groundwork, we know what communism's about, we know what central planning is about, and we get to see it adopted by another country with a different set of circumstances. Um, what do you think are some of the, of the parallels? Like, what are some things that are very similar between the Soviet topic and the Chinese topic that we're about to start talking about, Lachlan? Uh, how they both have like the one leader that's like trying to be like the main person who tries to like change things like they got in Russia they got Stalin and here they got Mao Zedong absolutely and that's our cult of personality so um you can definitely get that question come up in both of the topics enough with the pleasantries we're going to get down to the meat of the discussion with our first talking point if you listen to the trailer, I uh, did a little bit of a setup uh, for the listeners where we're talking about post-World War II, uh, the competing factions within China, the ROC and the CCP um, temporarily teamed up with the Allies, of course, Australians and the Americans to expel the Japanese who were, um, who were invading the mainland of China during World War II. Uh, once the Japanese had been defeated, the two sides went back to a state of civil war. This was the period of time where Mao Zedong became the undisputed leader of the CCP during the, the Long March, which, um, apart from his survival, was a complete disaster, but also gave a chance for him to become the undisputed leader as well to get his name out into the rural population. Um, the communists come out on top, surprisingly, takes the world by shock as the Americans are backing the other side, the ROC, and the ROC are banished and, ret and retreat, retreat, retreat to Taiwan. So now we're moving into looking at Mao after consolidating his power, 1958, looking at the Great Leap Forward. The first uh, talking point that I wanted to have a look at is that the Great Leap Forward was the only thing that could undermine Mao's prestige and power in the party. But why was the Great Leap Forward so bad? So we want to get into uh, the nitty-gritty about what was so bad about the Great Leap Forward. Maybe you want to start off by saying what the 
what the plans of the Great Leap Forward was, and I'm going to start with Tom. He might start with what were the plans and the goals of the Great Leap Forward? So the um, the way Mao sort of described the Great Leap Forward was that China would walk on two legs, and he was basically trying to copy what Stalin had done with his five-year plan. Well, we've had Tom drop out of out of our chat, technical difficulties. So we're going to have to go to his offside as Riley. Tom set us up that we have the Chinese uh, trying to copy the Soviet Union. Um, what are one of the ways that China is trying to rapidly uh, industrialize? What are one of the ways that they're trying to rapidly increase their food production? Um, one way that Mao tried to increase the food production in China was um, he would have like a lot of the rural areas come together and like, uh, what is it, create like massive um, production of like grain and uh, just ultimate types of food. But like they weren't actually able to like, they had to distribute it um, quite evenly. Yep, and um, these would be in the collectives? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just on the tip of your tongue. Um, and Lachlan, what were they doing in terms of industry? How was Mao trying to increase the production of iron? What extreme lengths were they going to uh, in order to try to do that? Um, they made, like, factories and stuff out in rural areas, which they like nominated, they drafted um, some of the peasants and stuff that were working on the agricultural part of it, and they sent them to those factories to make the steel and stuff. Yep, absolutely. Um, also, was it was the smelting of iron, because iron was one of these marking eco economic indicators that you were industrialised um, if you were producing good quality iron and steel, and then you could compare that number against other countries. Therefore, China wanted to increase its output of that particular uh, commodity. So was the smelting just done in factories, or what extreme length did the smelting of iron go to? Did anybody want to talk about that? Well, yeah, um, I found that, uh, a lot of the people would um, try and grab as much like iron and like metal from their households. So like even like nails and stuff out of boards just to smell in like, their backyard to try and get that bit more of a um, leap forward sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Does anybody have anything to add to that as well? Maybe like the quality of the iron, was it any good? Uh, well, yeah, that's the thing. Since there's like heaps of different like um, mediums of like iron and stuff being mixed together, it wasn't really the best quality. Therefore, making it not as like, um, yeah, not as good as against the other countries that are in these mass productions in uh, their revolutions. I mean, not their revolution in their um, industrializations. Absolutely, thank you, Riley. Yeah, and that hits the nail on the head that. 
it was creating this number that Beijing could hold up that yes, look how industrialized that we becoming, we're producing all this iron and steel so quickly. But the joke was um, that they just literally couldn't use it for anything, that the quality of the iron that was making its way to the factories after it had been smelted by these peasants from pots and pans and nails and God knows what else, um, is just crap. <laughs> so um, practically, it wasn't the best. Um, Tom, are you back now, mate? Yeah, I just had a bit of a technical difficulty with a flat PC, but yeah, I'm back. No problem. Um, we're going to move on from what the Chinese were actually doing. Can you maybe bring us back to the actual question? What was so bad for China about the Great Leap Forward? How did this hurt Mao's reputation? So um, because of the fact that they were sort of pushing these targets, but they weren't actually getting anything from the targets, there was um, a lot of famines and such. And from these famines, uh, roughly 30 to 40 million people died over the course of the Great Leap Forward. And as they tried to like get more fertiliser to increase the production of their grain and whatnot, 30% of their homes and villages were destroyed to make this fertiliser. And then all in all, the net income fell, um, inflation rose, all these sort of things, sort of, they all just had really bad impacts on the economy and it ended up just being a massive, um, massive failure, I guess. And Mao sort of got pinned for it, being the leader of the CCP. Thank you very much. Uh, Lachlan, do you have anything else to add on to there? Maybe maybe an example of what extreme lengths are these peasants going to um, with such a lack of food? Because all the food that they're growing, you know, they've destroyed their homes, um, they're destroying their livelihoods, trying to work on these collective farms and then they can't touch the grain. Um, what sort of extremes are these people going to? Um, there's high um, cases of cannibalism throughout the country as a result of this. So, Yeah, absolutely. And we have other recorded cases as well. And again, it's hard for us to tell because unlike the Soviet Union collapsing, uh, the Russian government uh, slightly okay or more okay with releasing the official reports because they're slightly more distant. The CCP that we're talking about now are still the same CCP who are in power in Beijing today. So the limited evidence that we have comes from reports um, from these local carters, but we still have this evidence of, can of cannibalism. We still have this evidence of people being punished by their food privileges being taken away from not working hard enough. Um, and perhaps maybe one of the more shocking cases I heard was that a father had to bury his son alive as a form of punishment as well. So these are the extreme lengths that people are going to. Um, what was Mao's response? to this does anybody want to 
like once this information starts coming to light, what happened to Mao? Where did he go? What did he have to do? He didn't go to jail, obviously. So with the destruction of his legacy, like always the legacy he was building, with it falling apart, with him getting pinned for the failures of the Great Leap Forward, he, he took him and his wife um, moved to Shanghai to sort of get out of the political spotlight. Absolutely. Uh, Riley, did you want to add anything to that? So what's his game plan to get back into power? Or maybe I think what is important to talk about first is if Mao's in Shanghai, who is in Beijing running the show? Well, uh, Lu Xia, well, I can't even pronounce his name properly. <laughs> was One it of the hard things of this topic. Yeah, um, was kind of been appointed as uh, chairman, like or as well as like just say um, someone to follow, with um, Deng Xiaoping as a bit of an offsider, and the whole like. Um, country kind of like carried his name alongside Mao's like as a um, equal like sort of leader and who was who was this sorry was this because I think I talked over the top of you when oh, you said the first guy um is it I can't pronounce it Liu Xiaokui yep I think that's pretty close yeah. I'm sure some people will comment and say no that's 100% wrong but that's the way we like to say it Liu Xiaoqi or Liu Xiaokui Yep, you can keep going, mate. So they were holding him up as oh. the they were holding him up as the main person. Ah, uh, yeah, and this kind of um, took the spotlight off of Mao. Um, and um, yeah, I, I might have to point this to someone else now. I don't, I don't know too much more on this topic. Yep, no, that's fair enough. Um, has anybody got anything else they'd like to add? If you don't, just say no so we don't have any dead air on this. Yeah, well, so as evidence for what Riley was saying, um, on the October, the 1st of October National Day celebrations in Beijing in 1965, um, the, the Chinese people carried images of, like, the leaders and people found that roughly equal numbers of Mao and Lee's images were being carried by the crowd, which sort of showed that Mao was sort of losing his popularity and Lee was coming up and that they were now sort of equals rather than Mao being the top dog in the CCP. Excellent. That's a killer piece of evidence. Um, Lachlan, have you got anything to add or would you like to move on to the next bit? No, I don't have anything else to add. Yep, no, that's fair enough. So... If we backtrack, we answered our first talking point, which was that the Great Leap Forward was Mao perhaps trying to take center stage as the leader of global communism. He had to make a big play at trying to catch up with the Soviet Union uh, and, the, and the West as perhaps a larger goal. This was all to be centrally planned. These central plans for grain targets and steel targets and iron targets and all other commodity targets were given to carters who would run these collectives. And these carters, um, when their plans failed, um, rather than admitting this to Mao because you had this 
this cult following and so much pressure and there was so much momentum just kind of lied about it and this just snowballed from 1958 to 1962 caused an incredible amount of death famine suffering and this was enough to tarnish uh, to tarnishes uh, to tarnish Mao's prestige he has left with his wife to Shanghai and as Riley and Tom has pointed out with some good evidence as well we can hypothesize that Liu Xiaokui is now in contest for taking away Mao's legacy and we also have Deng Xiaoping as his offsider but Mao's got a plan. So in 1966, Mao aims to launch a new cultural revolution. This is a device plan to try to create ideological renewal, but that's a little bit broad. I want to know from you guys, what are the aims and methods of Mao Zedong? And I might start with Tom with what are the aims? What does Mao want to get out of this cultural revolution? All right, so from the Cultural Revolution, Mao mainly just wants to get his like leadership in the CCP back, and he wants to re-secure his legacy as the revolutionary leader who had like proof that communism could work outside of Russia. And just like as I said earlier, he just wants to follow in Mao's footsteps and just set himself as the international leader of communism as well. Absolutely. Um, Riley, what are some of the methods? So we know what Mao wants. How is he going to achieve this? And you can start at, at any of the methods. Well, um, one of the uh, more um, uh, unusual methods would be that he uh, swam the uh, Yangtze River at the age of 72 to show his strength as a propaganda um, value. And he um, decided to target uh, something called the, the Four Roads, which was ideas, culture, customs, and habits, which would um, change China's culture. And that kind of uh, influenced the youth of China as more of the um, elderly population would have already been felt attached to these olds, and the youth may want to... Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 this is really good. And I'm going to use it as a setup for for Lachlan. Lachlan, can you think of a similar topic that we've done where the person in power realize, realizes that the youth is the group that you need to target and get on your side to get back into power or to get into power? Uh, yeah, Hitler with the Nazi party also tied to youth, I believe, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, so he realised that the youth were like an easier way to build up numbers within the party as they were more um, impressionable and stuff. So that made it easier for him to gain more power. Absolutely. And same as, same as Hitler, Lachlan, what... Do you think Mao is promising these children and teenagers of China? 
Um, he's promising that they will have power and it'll be taken more seriously within the country, which is sort of what they want, I guess. Yeah, he's like promising them like a different future. If we again put ourselves in this period of time, China is poor. China's just come out of the Great Leap Forward. There really isn't a future that these teenagers are perhaps seeing. Here comes Mao. He's targeting the four olds, which is basically targeting anybody who wants to cling on to the past. He's trying to represent himself as the future. Um, and he's going to get the kids on side. Thomas, can you give us some evidence as to how or some examples how he is going to, I guess, radicalise the education system? Um, so Mao decides to use his gang of four, which basically it acted as his version of Lee's work teams, which were trying to spread his ideology through the workplaces and the schools. And... Furthermore, they used um, with Lin Biao and the creation of the Little Red Book, which, if you're looking at parallels throughout history, is like kind of similar to Hitler's Mein Kampf in the way that it sort of set out his ideology, his aims, his sort of thoughts for the future of the country, and um, like this sort of helped build his cult of personality and you know, allowed the, the youth to sort of engage in this sort of thing. Um, furthermore, I guess the Gang of Four sort of encouraged the youth to build these posters, speaking like, and gave them the facilities to build the posters, which sort of spoke out against Li Xiaokui and um, Deng Xiaoping as being, you know, takers of the capitalist road and that sort of thing, which in the CCP capitalism is sort of the most heinous crime you can partake in, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Riley, have you got anything to add? And I'll just quickly recap for you that you've said that you create this idea of the four old. So you, you have your scapegoat, you have your people that you're going to attack for the cultural revolution. Then you radicalise the youth that, you know, I'm, I'm going to promise you a future, but the only thing getting in the way of that future are the people who want to cling on to the past, the, these bad people, these old people, these people that hang on to these old, outdated, backwards ideas. Um, we have the gang of four that are going around into schools who are providing resources and materials to the children to create these uh create these posters and get them involved in the revolution that's going on. Um, we have Lin Biao creating the Little Red Book, which has all these quotes and ideas from Mao Zedong that all these um, followers have and they keep almost as a little Bible. Um, do you feel like if you are writing a response to this question, you would want to add anything else? Uh, I feel that it's been um, covered quite well, but uh, we haven't really covered the Red Guards. Yeah, talk about that. So um, the Mao like, um, established a thing called the Red Guards that the youth would um, participate in to kind of give them a political voice and uh, somewhere 
like a pathway that they can kind of take in future. And this kind of like took a um a um what what would I say um like attack the um teachers and the um leaders or not the leaders but the um the opposition and yeah the opposition <laughs> yeah can anybody um, um and not to cut you off and you i'll give it to you first do you remember the example of the teacher that was actually beaten to death by the students do you remember that from class um no i'm not too uh sure about that one maybe block that one out of your mind um Thomas or Lachlan, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, kind of, sir. I just, yeah, I know they sort of were really violent and just um, created a lot of chaos in following Mao's ideals, which, you know, chaos is like a great um, factor in assisting revolutions to come about and whatnot. Yeah, and again, we don't want to get caught up in writing narratives about the cultural revolution but if you were trying to make a point that these kids are so i guess invested in the idea and that education or traditional education or intellectuals were being targeted during this cultural revolution you could use the example of um a um it was a principle a principal being beaten to death with blunt instruments and then be her body being dumped into a waste bin outside of the school. That this just shows you that in normal times, this is not okay. This is murder. <laughs> but during the Cultural Revolution, if you're part of the Red Guard, it is okay. You're allowed to do it. Um, I think we have covered our two talking points pretty well. Again, Listener, if you're hearing this, you can see that this is one of the more, I guess, complicated topics that you can undertake. However, if you overlap them with another communist uh, topic like the Russia National Study, you will have a firm foundation. And it's all about making connections and, and parallels and just reinforcing it, the ideas and seeing that they repeat. Um, I'm going to give our three speakers a chance to sign off and then we'll wrap up. So, Tom, I'll give you a chance to sign off. All right. See you guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I'll see you on my next podcast, whenever that is. <laughs> <laughs> Rightio. Thanks, Tom. Riley, you did well, mate. <laughs> uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for listening. And um, I'll see you next time. Excellent. And Lachlan, who at the beginning said he was worried about having to come up with stuff on the spot. I think you, you did a great job, mate. So let's have a handoff to you. Yeah, um, thanks for listening, everyone. Just keep um, keep um, post, like, uh, listening to the podcast. There's a lot more topics to cover, and it's very interesting. Excellent. Thank you very much. Our next topic that we're going to be covering is going to be giving a bit of a brief overview of what happens at the end of the Cultural Revolution, but the meat of the next discussion is going to be looking at the rise of Deng Xiaoping and looking at the Tiananmen Square protests.
Thank you very much for tuning in. We'll see you next time.